everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Joining me this week is Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. Dr. Fisher is an addiction physician and bioethicist. He's an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, where he works in the division of law, ethics, and psychiatry. He also maintains a private psychiatry practice focusing on complementary and integrative approaches to treating addiction. His writing has appeared in Nautilus, Slate, and Scientific American Mind, among other outlets. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, with his partner and son. I invited Dr. Fisher on after seeing the news about Shakari Richardson and her recent ban for drug use. I was interested in the judgmental attitudes of many of the comments I'd seen supporting the ban. In one instance, someone suggested the ban did not discriminate, which assumes that people all have the same motivation and drive toward drug use, which is clearly and observably untrue. Additionally, folks seem to be more sympathetic and supportive of athletes involved with other sanctions and rule violations that revolved around dress code violations, showing a marked tendency to moralize far more with regard to drug use. A black friend of mine even said outright that assuming Richardson may be someone who uses recreational drugs in anything but a recreational capacity over which she can exercise total conscious control is racist. And yet most of our moralizing about the ways in which people use recreational drugs come from colonial xenophobic attitudes that denigrate recreational drugs and drug use in most settings. That is to say that the idea of judging people as decent or indecent based on how or why they use drugs is itself something that often has roots in racist views of indigenous or cultural drug use. For me, the problem is a lack of understanding and an overabundance of judgment about the goodness or badness of drugs and drug use without context. How or why Richardson uses drugs is irrelevant because it doesn't make her a bad person. I have no idea how much pressure she does or does not feel to use drugs. Because I don't view drug use as inherently bad or a sign of weakness or moral insufficiency, it simply doesn't matter to me. The problem is not what color a person is if they're self-medicating with recreational drugs. The problem is the unwarranted judgments around anyone using drugs at all, simply because we've bought into the idea that certain types of drug use are inherently evil. NPR recently featured a segment entitled, What to Know About Olympic Marijuana Bans? They featured Dr. Michael Joyner, a physician and researcher on exercise physiology at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Here's what he had to say about the actual ban. Quote, But the list is a blanket list, so if it's banned in one sport, it's banned in everything. And then, I think when the list emerged, as the list emerged in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and later on, people wanted to, you know, ban what they saw at the time as drugs of abuse. So I think this is a legacy of just kind of poor regulation in terms of not specifically saying what drug is banned for which event, and also this sort of reefer madness sort of holdover. Joyner went on to say, quote, Well, again, I think it's really tied up in the whole, you know, should marijuana be legal, illegal, drug of abuse, drug of use, recreational drug? And all of these sorts of discussions have been going on in our country, you know, really for a long time but especially the last 30-40 years. And I think if you actually look at the data, and I did that yesterday, I went on PubMed, the National Medical Library, which is online, and looked at the data. 
And really, there's almost no information about how it influences athletic performance, and certainly very little information about how it might influence performance in things like shooting, archery, and so forth, things that would require relaxation. So really, the evidence is either non-existent, very thin, and again, wouldn't apply to any of the events that Richardson is in. End quote. It was against the backdrop of this discussion that I went online and started to Google information. Then I came upon an article in Nautilus called Against Willpower. Willpower is a dangerous old idea that needs to be scrapped by Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. I reached out to Dr. Fisher after reading it and asked if he'd be willing to come on and talk to me. He said that he would, and what follows is our discussion. So welcome to the podcast, Carl, and I'm really glad you could join us. Thanks so much, Tracy. It's great to be here with you and your listeners. I actually came across you when I had seen some information on Shakari Richardson, who was the athlete who had been banned for drug use. I came across your article, which was at Nautilus. It talked a little bit about willpower. In fact, it was all about willpower. It's a fascinating case. It, it uncovers so many different layers around not just psychology, but drugs and drug policy, and especially drug policy in the States. Like a lot of things in the mass media, it's hard to unpack those without resorting to sort of polarized sound bites, which is unfortunately where drug discourse usually winds up. So one of the things that you mention is the whole history of willpower and how you view this now as potentially being a pre-science concept that really may have outlived its usefulness if it had ever been useful. I, I became interested in willpower as not just a scientific, but also as a cultural and historical phenomenon, because we have to listen to the science and the science is also strongly influenced by our sometimes explicit, but often implicit cultural and social attitudes about human psychology human functioning. And willpower, I thought was such a prime example, because willpower, called by different names, can be traced back through a lot of modern psychology, all the way back to ancient psychology. It, it necessarily intersects with ideas about morality. I, we'll, we'll have time to talk about the Shikari Richardson case, but I, that's what I assume kind of led you to the topic of willpower is there's this implicit idea about how people should be using drugs or how they should be able to discipline themselves or govern their own drug use. And all of those things, I think, are inseparable from assumptions about what we're capable of doing and how we should be able to exercise those capabilities. And in your own article in Nautilus, you talk about something called ego depletion, which is, I guess, this idea of a limited capacity for willpower that somehow temptation wears you down and ultimately you would give in. People don't conceptualize it just as being sort of brute force, you know, muscle strength that you can wear down. But you also give information that shows that there is some evidence that it can act almost as placebo if you suggest to people that their willpower is limited. People have come up with a lot of different explanatory models for what we might call willpower in just casual conversation. And so maybe it's good to take a step back and and talk about just the idea of willpower and what it might mean and what it might it, what it might not mean. Willpower has long had this position in the English language as suggesting a sort of strength or quantity. 
And one of the things I trace in the article is that it, it actually connects to the time of the Industrial Revolution and assumptions about having some sort of power or quantity within one's own psychology to be able to exert force over bad or otherwise negative impulses. What we found in more recent years in the study of psychology is that it's a sort of baggy concept. And by that, I mean, it's sort of big and capacious and can hold a lot of different possible cognitive functions within it. So that that example of ego depletion is just one example. You know, one of the things I write about is that we used to have this idea called ego depletion about the idea that the ego could exert some strength over our, our will and our urges, and then that somehow got used up. But uh, more recent studies have had trouble replicating that. And I think even more interestingly, is not like the sort of horse race of, you know, does this scientific concept win or does that scientific concept win? It's more interesting when it sort of refracts and then a given concept like willpower opens up into multiple different possibilities. So when one person says willpower, they might mean the immediate suppression of an urge in the moment. And then another person might use willpower to mean, someone might mean different intentions or, or different sorts of priorities that they're still sorting through in their mind and priorities can shift over time. Those two phenomena can look exactly the same, but one might be sort of being overcome by an urge and the other is someone who's simply changing their mind. So from a starting point, we have to be very clear about what we mean when we say willpower. Right. And you give an example in the Nautilus article about competing goals. Two men that you talk about who are trying to curb their drinking use, and they address it in two very different ways. I think the, the idea of willpower can be a stumbling block or even just straight up negative. It could, the idea of willpower can be detrimental if somebody takes it to mean I should be able to do something or that my difficulties are not valid or I just need to try harder. And that one of those examples was exactly that. Somebody who attributed his problem with controlling his drinking to problem with willpower, whereas the other, at least initially, was able to reframe his behavior and wasn't thinking of it in this sort of forceful controlling way, but more to do with drilling down to his actual goals and what mattered the most to him. I think that that kind of granularity is really useful in a, in a lot of circumstances. It's useful in policy. It's useful in the ways that we think about what we expect from other people, but it's also really useful for individual behavioral change. Willpower, I think, especially in contemporary Western societies, uses a cudgel, you know, where we beat ourselves up for supposedly lacking some sort of strength or power to conform ourselves to often some unrealistic societal expectation. And you do talk a little bit about framing in that same article. You give an example where people are offered $5 now or $10 next month, and people were often going for the $5 now instead of the double amount in a month. But then when the question was reframed to say, I'll give you $5 now and $0 in a month or $0 now and $10 in a month, not only did more people go for the $10, but brain imagery showed that they actually thought about the question differently. Yeah, I love that example. It's just such a striking example of the way neuroscience can sometimes upset our usual assumptions 
sometimes neuroscience can be used in an overly reductive way or tell an oversimplified story, but uh, it's really beautiful and rich when a neuroimaging study like this gives a surprising result. And in this case, specifically, that reframing example you gave, when people frame the question, not just as $5 versus $10, but $5 today and $0 in a month or 0 and 10 in a month, it wasn't an, a function of effort. It wasn't a function of some kind of powerful self-control. It was actually, in a way, a less effortful reframing, reimagining the problem and being more explicit about the trade-offs, making the implicit trade-offs explicit. It didn't activate the brain areas that we commonly associate with conscious, effortful fighting against impulses. It actually just almost allowed, it, this is kind of anthropomorphizing a little bit, but it, in a sense, allowed the brain function to take a step backward and just use a different cognitive process entirely. We often, when we're trying to make habit change or behavioral changes or, or just healthier choices, have this idea that we just need to work harder. We need to put more sweat into it. And that can be counterproductive. Usually there's a, a sort of softer, more compassionate way to treat ourselves. Assumptions about what we should and shouldn't do, whether it's money or food, or nutrition, or again, non-harmful drug use that so many people engage in, those, those shoulds can kind of contaminate our more level-headed and rationalistic understanding of what the, what the actual trade-offs are. We have a legacy of moralizing around those sorts of individual behavioral choices that actually obscures, especially the way we think about drug policy. People have used drugs in every human society with very, very, very rare exceptions since as far back as we can trace it anthropologically. Caffeine is a substance. Nicotine is a substance. There are plenty of substances that we use now and that other cultures have used throughout time. It didn't have anything to do with willpower, any notion of should or shouldn't. It was just a part of culture as a part of society. As a legacy of our own nation's twisted history of drug policy, Certain drugs have like, such a, a powerful negative connotation that they, they just like, carry this like implicit taint that one, one should not use these substances. And that really interferes, like taking it back to my clinical examples, it really interferes with an individual's attempt to make sense of what's, what's actually helpful, just in a pragmatic sense. What's helpful, what's harmful, where, where do my true interests lie? When you went back looking for early uses of willpower, the earliest one you found had to do with substance use. One clarification about that, though, there's, there's a legacy of will, and different philosophers have used the word will in various terms, and it's complicated by the fact that often this is in translation, and whether will is the appropriate translation is sometimes a question. But willpower, as a specific term, came about during the Victorian era. It was really an obsession. It wasn't just some sort of cold, rational theory you know, it was it was a full on obsession having to do with the self help movement and with uh, notions of self denial and effort and the so called self made man. At least as far as I could trace it, the earliest use of the word that's listed in the Oxford English Dictionary was in reference to drinking. I have the quote in front of me. It says, "The drunkard whose willpower and whose moral force have been conquered by degraded appetite." So, making a reference to the drunkard who supposedly has this thing in them. You know, we can ask about how how tied together willpower and so-called moral force are have been taken over by this other bad appetite 
it's that notion of willpower as, as a thing, as an essence, as a quantity that lives inside of us that really powerfully took hold. It, it wasn't so much like a thing that people did. It was a thing that you had. Uh, that notion persists today in the sense that we, we can attach more value to people who supposedly have more willpower. It's, it's, it's held up as some sort of like laudable achievement. And you give other examples where this sort of view of drugs and willpower affect social policy. So you talk about social safety nets and drug laws, but also what was interesting was the idea of littering. Yeah, notions of individual responsibility have long been used and deployed in the rhetoric around willpower. In the case of littering, it, it had a particularly capitalistic tone or bent where trade groups involved in producing cans, like aluminum cans back in the, the earlier days of their adoption in American society, were really into emphasizing the notion of littering as an individual problem and put forth this narrative that trash and litter was a problem of individual action. Just like today's climate emergency, that individualistic narrative can be really twisted. It, it takes away uh, the public attention from where it also belongs and probably belongs even more, which is the sort of broad-based, concerted, asymmetrical efforts by powerful forces such as industries, whether they be can companies or fossil fuel companies or whatnot, that kind of ideological cover has been used across the whole history of sailing and marketing that relates to behaviors. It was used by alcohol companies when they were trying to repeal prohibition. It was used by cigarette companies, especially when evidence about cancer comes out. I think we have to be very cautious about the way the assumptions about willpower play into public policy. It can, it can be very easily twisted into something that puts an undue amount of responsibility on the individual. And I found it really interesting because I had never really thought about the way that industry had produced huge amounts of throwaway packaging. And so the onus became on people to make sure that you distribute that trash in the right way when you're done unwrapping the product. The, the narrative was named Keep America Beautiful. It was a massive campaign. I think if I remember correctly, it had a picture of a, a weeping Native American that was put all over different magazines. Uh, that image of just uh, violating the land is exactly what the corporations were doing. It, it was just a sort of misplaced attribution of the problem. For the commercial to use you know, an Indigenous person, I mean, I know that that's taken some criticism, but it takes, I guess, even more darker shades when I think of it in terms of corporations producing mass pollution and then trying to put the onus and the blame and the ire onto the individual that is buying their product. And in the meantime, showing an indigenous person being sad at what has happened as though the worst has not already happened. Genocide and land theft now being used as a tool for corporations to try and make descendants of colonists feel bad about polluting. Yeah, it's really twisted. Another reason it's twisted is because it doesn't work. The advertising efforts work because the narrative is successful in terms of misdirecting the blame, but they don't work for behavioral change. We know very, very well that shame, guilt, and regret are not effective drivers of behavioral change. I mean, that's the, the mechanism that a lot of people default to 
in contemporary society, but um, we, we have great research that, that shows that shame and blame usually just exacerbates whatever sort of behavioral problems people are going through. So the notion that you can make people feel bad by putting this, again, this twisted image in a magazine uh, is, is just like totally misguided. It, it obscures the actual effect of, of the advertising. way that people argue about sex education. And especially where I live in Texas, they have this concept of abstinence only or abstinence mainly that has never worked ever in the history of human beings. And yet they mm. promote that as how they want to keep going. It relies heavily on the idea of shame and moralizing and looking at sexuality as something negative that people need to refrain from in general. You can heap on as much shame and as much derision as you like, but clearly after so many thousands of years, we can see that it doesn't work. Yeah, the topic of sex and specifically behavioral problems with sex or you know, whether it's somebody else saying that somebody has a behavioral problem or somebody saying I myself have a behavioral problem is such a complicated and important topic because of the way it's wielded as a weapon to harm other people. There's really interesting research on a religious affiliation and the way people identify their sexual problems. People who are evangelical Christians or more religious Christians are more likely to call their pornography viewing a problem or even an addiction. I think that's a really rich and nuanced sort of finding. Like on one hand, there's a recent series by Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times about how a lot of online porn really does have problems. It can be a site for exploitation. Also individually, people do have problems with porn sometimes in the sense that it like impacts their marriage or otherwise leaves them feeling bad. But on the other hand, masturbation and porn use is pretty normal to just create the blanket notion that if you're you know attracted to online images in 2021, where everything is freely available, kind of sets people up to fail. It eliminates the possibility of having an honest and sort of sober conversation about sex. It's such a missed opportunity, especially for America's young people to talk about sex in a more realistic way and to talk about sexual urges in a curious way that allows people to kind of make their own determinations and come to their own conclusions about their, their relationship with sex and sexuality. And in the same way, we have these similar sorts of restrictions and shame and denigration around relationships with drugs. Yes, definitely. I think most people, myself included, I grew up in 1981 in North Jersey. Most people of my generation, most people of most generations grew up with the notion that there was a certain class of drugs, not all drugs, because like, like I mentioned, there's caffeine and others, but a certain class of drugs that were bad full stop. They were dangerous drugs. They almost universally caused problems. They almost universally led to addiction. And just simply put, almost all of those narratives are attributable to racist moral panics throughout the history of the United States. When I was growing up in the 80s in the Northeast, a lot of that was around crack, but it's been like that for marijuana dating back to in the 1930s, even earlier, there's an amazing historian of drugs named Isaac Campos, who went and investigated Mexican ideas about cannabis. He found that negative attitudes about cannabis were even used in Mexico, independent of the United States, as a weapon by the upper class against the lower class and indigenous population there. It's not the sole source of American negative attitudes, 
but it was an influence on American negative attitudes about cannabis that were then used in the 1910s, 20s, 30s against Mexican immigrants, who, by the way, were fleeing from the Mexican Revolution, which the U.S. had a part in. It becomes like a real twisted way, once again, of assigning blame by uh, treating one class of individual behavior as if it's morally wrong and should be universally restricted, rather than just looking clearly at pragmatically, like, what is this substance? How have people used it? How am I using it? What are the effects? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And you do talk a little bit about the concept of good drugs and bad drugs. I would say a lot of folks are probably familiar with the phrase hard drugs, right? So you have marijuana and then you have hard drugs. Mm-hmm. And I remember once seeing an interview with a woman who was dealing with being in trouble because she had been caught doing heroin. But one of the things that she mentioned was that she actually functioned fine while she was on heroin. The the problems occurred when she would run out of heroin and then she would start to not be able to function all right. So for her, being on heroin was actually maintaining her ability to deal with past trauma and also be a wife, be a mother, do her job, do all the things she needed to do. It was how she got by in life. Yeah, it's so true for so many folks and so controversial. I think that the American public has long had a really limited attention span and capacity to hear stories like that. It somehow challenges some idea we have about what we should and shouldn't be able to do and what kinds of drugs are worth taking and what kinds of drugs are not worth taking. But the truth of the matter is, even for people with severe drug problems where drugs are causing them legitimate problems in their lives, there's often other causes and conditions that are worth exploring and from my perspective as a clinical psychiatrist, are often more fruitful to explore. So just like the example from that Willpower article, that's a more benign example of somebody who needed to work on stress reduction. And even before that, the, the emotional fluency of understanding his own stress in order to make changes in his alcohol use. There's so many people for whom even more severe and sort of in the short term, immediately harmful drug use is actually functional. It's functional because the drug does something for the person. If life feels intolerable, if someone doesn't have hope because they don't have access to the same types of opportunities for recovery and stability, then drugs can seem like and might even be a more tolerable answer to life's problems. It's not to say that like we put the drugs aside and we focus on the underlying structural issues. But it's also not to say that we can ignore the structural issues and focus just on the drugs. We need a multi-front approach to such complicated psychological phenomena. Later in this episode, we're going to discuss an article that was written in the New York Times by Michael Pollan. But there's a quote from that article that I'd like to go ahead and interject now because it is relevant to what we're talking about right here. It starts... The abuse of opiates unquestionably does a tremendous amount of damage to individuals as well as to society. But contrary to the stereotype of spiraling chemical enslavement, some people manage to use opiates habitually while leading productive lives. Many, if not most of the harms of the practice stem from its prohibition. Yeah, you know, it's important to recognize the diversity behind that statement. I think it's a carefully written phrase and it's mostly true. And most people know some people who, despite every possible advantage, still struggle with addiction. 
we can't point to some sort of like problem of prohibition in say, for example, a privileged person who's never experienced the harms of prohibition. So there are some people who do have problems with a substance like opiates or a substance like alcohol. It's not the fact that it's illegal that just makes it quote unquote bad. But I do think overall, in terms of our cultural imagination and our usual stereotypes, we act as if there's some sort of chemical enslavement, as if it's the drug that's doing all the work and that it it causes some sort of problem in and of itself. It's important to recognize those examples that some people use drugs without really whopping harms or really any harms at all. If we look at it from a pragmatic perspective, there's no problem with that. The, The problem comes from our attempts to rein in and control people's use. Yeah, I would say that I habitually use caffeine, right? I mean, I definitely do it every single day. Me too. And I used, you know, yesterday I was kind of dragging a little bit and I had um, I had some tea at 5 p.m., which is not something I normally do. And then I had trouble sleeping. That's not a huge problem, but that's a drug harm. <laughs> but it, it's not the kind of drug harm that gets me into trouble. And it's not the kind of drug harm that like subjects me to police control. Because I, you know, I want to be conscious of the fact that there are people who probably know folks who have really suffered from addiction. And when people are suffering from extreme addiction, they can cause harm to themselves and they can cause harm to other people. And so it's not to say that all drugs are the same. Opiates are different than caffeine and caffeine is different from broccoli. And there's nothing intrinsic in opiates that mean that we should treat them as if they're universally dangerous or as if they're like a scourge to be eliminated from the earth. Because the bottom line is we can't, you know, we just can't. Prohibition has basically never worked unless you have a really, really repressive government system. Like, for example, the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, you just can't really stamp out drug use. Even then, it wasn't even complete. There are other sort of scattered examples. Prohibition if its goal is to prohibit, meaning to totally squash, is a failure. A better word would be regulation, trying to find the right trade-off of sort of the risks and benefits of interventions to find that sweet spot between like total free-for-all laissez-faire and a crackdown. One of the articles that you included in the notes talked about a study on rats that I think the general public is very familiar with the original study, which was this idea that you put the rat in the cage, you give the rat access to drugs, especially something like morphine or heroin, and the rat will sit and take the drugs more than even eat or drink or do whatever it needs to do. And so it will ultimately die just taking drugs. And then someone got the idea to try the same experiment in a cage that actually was a stimulating environment for the rat that was fun, that had other rats that had things to do and good food to eat. And the rat would go off and do other things. He still came back into the drugs, but he wasn't glued to the drug dispenser. Yeah, that's Bruce Alexander's Rat Park. And Bruce Alexander in his own right is a fascinating and really incisive psychologist who has gone on to write about globalization and poverty and alienation as some of the root cause drivers for addiction. And a lot of that stems out of that original Rat Park study he did in British Columbia decades ago now. And I should mention, you know, Rat Park is very popular. It's commonly cited as an explanation, sometimes an oversimplified explanation for how drugs work scientifically. 
Rat Park has is not held up a hundred percent. It's still a, an esteemable finding, but there's certain ways that like it hasn't fully been replicated. So all of that to say is that this is complicated. And the, the point is not to say that all drug use or all like overwhelming and harmful drug use can be attributed to a social problem. It's not that simple. But what Bruce Alexander did, which was so revolutionary for its time back in the 70s, was to show that drugs were not just some magical chemical that came over and hijacked your brain. Even, even despite those findings, that, that narrative persists to the present day, that drugs are some sort of like demon that can take you over and force you to do something you don't want to do. Some drugs are powerful. Drugs are stronger than broccoli. Drugs are stronger than going for a walk. And so some people do get attached to drugs in a harmful way. But to attribute all the power in the drug really overlooks the full scope of the problem and impairs our ability to respond effectively to the problems of drug addiction or just simply drug use that is not necessarily addiction. And those, those two things are really, really important to separate because sometimes in our drug policy, we treat something like a potentially addictive drug as if it's universally addictive. And it's just not the case. There are some people who can use heroin in a sort of controlled and functional way, not as much as the number of people who can use alcohol in a controlled and functional way. But to, to paint with a broad brush about the effects of substances can be really, really harmful. And you also mentioned how policies can change. You brought up the idea of big cannabis, because right now we're sort of seeing the beginnings of a shift of social policy in the U.S., where more states are starting to legalize drugs in different forms, especially marijuana. And one particular person that I recalled when you brought up that concept of big cannabis or what's starting to be the you know money-making form of it as it starts to become more legal was former House Speaker John Bonner, who was formerly completely opposed to legalization, saying that his mind would never change. And he has now affiliated with a group that wanted it legalized in order to make a profit he is one example of an older generation person who has become swept up in this legalization issue, potentially because of profit. Yeah, it's funny how people can switch sometimes, right? It, it seems like the winds of change can really change drug policy very rapidly. This is a common theme across the whole history of American drug policy. These, these very sort of rapid and all or nothing shifts there was a time that the sedatives like the early generation of barbiturates were really, really heavily used and associated with a huge number of overdose deaths, Marilyn Monroe, Jimi Hendrix, many others. And then uh, very quickly the door slammed and um, it goes in the other direction too. There can be a backlash and there can be a criminalization and a crackdown. And then once people start to get wise to the, uh, the, the sort of just craziness of those sorts of limitations on what is a, generally a pretty benign drug, the pendulum can swing way over to the other side. And let me be really clear, cannabis legalization is long overdue. It's, it's long been used specifically to target black and brown and otherwise urban poor communities in a way that's extremely harmful. That was the initial impetus for legalization, or at least one of the big impetuses for legalization. And so I think it's generally a good to ease off of those harmful crackdowns using cannabis. 
at the same time, just like any other medically related intervention, cannabis has risks and benefits. And there are some people who will have problems with using it. Again, nowhere near as many people as have problems with alcohol. But we run into a problem when these, these sorts of substances get corporatized. The power of the industrial forces that want to open up the market have a tendency to obscure the externalities. They make us overlook the real costs of these substances. And in a way, alcohol and tobacco, even today, tobacco are, are a much better example where we don't tax alcohol nearly enough to make up for the harms that it causes. In a way, alcohol companies, for example, are getting a free lunch. Alcohol causes massive harm and they don't have to pay for it. They don't have to pay for the cost of cirrhosis and traffic accidents and domestic violence. And I'm not in favor of temperance. I don't think that we should ban alcohol either. I just think that we need to find a healthy middle ground between total crackdown prohibition and total wide open laissez-faire sort of corporate driven consumption. And you do talk a little bit about environment, even though earlier you were talking about the rat experiment and saying that it's not necessarily set in stone. Definitely, we do see links, though, correct, between environment and drug use, especially in situations where people are put into high stress communities. Absolutely. 100%. Environment has a powerful effect on the way people use drugs. And also as a separate but related issue, the way that people develop harmful relationships with substances. One element of environment that's extremely powerful is adverse childhood experiences. And that can include the obvious things like trauma and violence, but it can also include neglect and poverty and food scarcity. Those effects are not a matter of willpower. And they're also not like baked into somebody in their early childhood so that they're broken in some way. People have enormous potentials for recovery. It's not a matter of individual choice, not entirely. And I think for like a truly compassionate drug policy, we have to recognize all of the different factors that influence how somebody might use a substance. Do you have any examples that you could give of correlations between environment and drug use? Correlations between environment and drug use, we can look at that a few different ways. One is the effect of the environment on someone's psychology that then leads to some kind of drug use. That might include forms of stress or even outright trauma. We can also look at environment as just the sort of architecture of someone's lived experience. What is the availability of healthy alternative coping options? Does somebody have access to green space? Does somebody have access to healthy food, healthy exercise? Or does somebody live in an environment, even just sticking within the legal substances, where potentially harmful substances like alcohol and tobacco are widely available? Availability is always one of the strongest, strongest drivers of substance use and substance use problems. Every time a culture is introduced to a novel substance, it invariably is followed by a wave of massive uptake. That's not always a problem, but it tends to be a problem when a culture doesn't necessarily have the sort of other structures and practices in place to help use that substance in a productive and healthy and useful way. For some reason, my mind is just going to the example of indigenous peoples here in the Americas. Before European contact, there were a lot of indigenous folks who used alcohol. There, it wasn't super duper widespread, but there were communities, for example, in the American Southwest that had learned how to distill alcohol, essentially. And those cultures used alcohol without major problems. 
But then a variety of indigenous communities developed huge alcohol problems after European contact. And that was attributed at the time to some sort of like deterministic effect. The narrative was that Native Americans were somehow weaker, couldn't control themselves. When in reality, that, that was better attributed to the effects of rampant disease, colonialism, war, oppression, outright economic exploitation, a huge number of factors. Getting back to the environment question, there are a lot of examples that can drive drug use in a negative way, but there are also examples of environmental influences that can help people to use substances in a way that's not harmful, as they have been across societies, across continents for generations. Yeah, in fact, a lot of the drug stigma that we see in the West is tied to xenophobic and racist response. In the Americas, we tend to want to make the plants illegal because those are tied to indigenous rituals and drug use. And then when we had immigration here from China and parts of Asia, we saw opium use. And that seemed to be associated with laziness and then panic when white youth started to use the drug and suddenly it became illegal and a problem. Colonialism has tended to ignore drug issues as long as they sort of stayed within indigenous populations, didn't, quote, infect too much of the white community and didn't cause a problem for what they were trying to achieve as colonists. But at the first sign of any sort of an issue or any sort of a conflict, they would then be demonized. For some reason, though, we have a few drugs that have seemed to have. So you had a word for this. You called it grudging toleration. Yeah, that's not my phrase. I took it and i um, happy to attribute it to one of my favorite writers, actually now passed, Mark Kleiman who uh, wrote about drug policy for many, many years at NYU. And grudging toleration was his way of describing the, the notion that we need to find some sort of healthy middle ground, that we have to recognize drugs come with risks and benefits. And so it, we have to stay away from these extreme poles of a total free-for-all on one end and a total crackdown on the other. And it's very, very hard to do. We seem to lack the patience to do that across different times and places. Uh, you brought up the opium example. It's such a great example because it shows how ideas about safety and science and progress can be attached to a drug to sort of excuse it. And that's a long history in American drug policy that we've used stories about drugs to excuse white and or upper class use while simultaneously disparaging the use of other communities, even if it's exactly the same drug. There was an idea in the 19th century that morphine delivered through a syringe was not addictive, but somehow smoking opium was. And the, the only reason for that is because smoking opium was much more common among Chinese immigrants, which were subject to crushing uh, xenophobic oppression in the West during the gold rush and afterward. But morphine was a very, very popular substance in the doctor's bag and patients loved it. And nowadays you, we can look at that and say, wow, like the notion that an, an injected drug would somehow be less addictive than a drug taken by another means is just preposterous. How could that possibly be true? We know that the speed of onset is a major driver in terms of how powerful a drug might affect someone. But that almost obvious sort of realization, which I think would have been apparent to a, a cautious observer back then, was completely overlooked because it didn't fit with the, the broader 
social narrative. And so it's usually the tail wagging the dog in these situations. It's almost like the scientific explanation is kind of retrofitted onto our prevailing cultural stereotypes. some thoughts about types of treatment and coercive treatment specifically, whether or not coercive treatment works. And I know that from a lay perspective, we hear a lot about this. So I think that there is a lot of narrative about coercion doesn't work. And then we still put people into treatment as penalty for crimes or as alternatives for prison. And You dive into that in another article that was published in Slate, where you talk a lot about the way this depends on how you look at coercion. I'm a bioethicist in addition to a clinical psychiatrist. So I like going to an almost nerdy extent into the meaning and the use of words as they apply to our social policies and our treatment policies. So coercion is one of those words. It's really important to get clear on coercion. It might summon up the image of somebody in handcuffs being led away to some sort of judicially supervised treatment program. But in the psychological literature, at least, we think about coercion across a whole spectrum. There's a huge, huge range of informal coercion, too. You know, if a spouse tells their partner, I'm going to leave you unless you make a change here, that's a form of coercion. If someone's job says, you can't keep working here unless you get some kind of treatment, then that's coercion. And there there are even more sort of subtle examples there too. So because addiction and other substance use problems sometimes feel like a sort of fractured will across time where somebody has trouble keeping their own intentions in line with their actions or vice versa, somebody might say, okay, today's the day I'm going to put it down and I'm going to start getting to work again. They may have trouble holding themselves to that resolution. In that sense, there are ways, I think, that coercion can sometimes be helpful. Not the type of really punishing and powerful criminal legal crackdowns that is normally associated with that word. But I think that we miss a big part of the picture if we ignore the fact that coercion is operative. I mean, in some studies, upwards of 70% of people entering addiction treatment were there because of some kind of coercion. It was more commonly informal than it was the sort of formal legal coercion. You noted that when you look at this in a more broad form, it appears that there really is no distinction between coerced treatment and non-coerced treatment. Did I understand that right? Well, it's tricky to study. I think that's mostly right. I think it's mostly right that it's hard to find a difference between coerced and not coerced. But part of the problem is that we study coercion as if it's an intervention unto itself, or at least we have a tendency to talk about it that way. And it doesn't really work that way. That's the way we study, say, for example, antidepressants. You give someone an antidepressant and then somebody else a placebo and you do a randomized controlled trial. But coercion is not an intervention. Coercion is a way that you deliver some other intervention. People can be coerced legally, for example, into one type of program versus another type of program, or some people who are in the criminal legal system might be coerced or officially mandated into one kind of treatment, while the other group is not mandated in some way. We can look at that as studies of coercion, but it's not just a study of coercion. It's also a study of the type of treatment that somebody is being mandated to. And so that makes a big difference. And the fact of the matter is it's quite difficult to treat 
addiction. And it's especially difficult to treat addiction in the way that our criminal legal system usually delivers it, which is just kind of ass backward. Basically, we treat it as if it's some sort of acute problem where you go away to some sort of therapeutic community or rehab, and then people are basically expected to be discharged back to their home communities and be able to maintain perfect abstinence and you know show up for their legal meetings and give a, a urine sample that doesn't have drugs in it and just go back to the normal lives as if it was like a surgery as if you were just like cutting out a defective gallbladder but that's that's not really an effective method of treatment and we know from the general psychiatric literature that there are enormous rates of relapse for people who are just treated in that narrow acute care sense so it could be misleading to say like coercion works or coercion doesn't work. I think in a way it's much more important to look at how are systems operating in a coercive way and how can we nudge them toward something that's more compassionate? Because I have no illusions that people are just going to wake up tomorrow and see the light and start delivering this type of like criminal legal associated care in like a totally new paradigm. It's just not happening in the United States today. But if we're offering something as if it were treatment or sort of under the banner of treatment, then there are ways that we can nudge that toward more compassionate and person-centered care that respects an individual's autonomy and especially does what we can to like nurture and nourish the idea that people are making choices. People have the capacity to uh, uh, make choices even when they're within a coercive system. And that's the research that I find much more interesting actually, is that regardless of whether someone is formally mandated or coerced or whatever, that may have less of an effect than the degree to which we encourage and reinforce someone's self-determination. And that comes out of a, a series of scientific studies and theories called self-determination theory. I, I don't think I need to say, but might as well say it anyway, we could do a much better job of <laughs> treating people with that kind of respect within the criminal legal system. It's such a paternalistic and dominating force in so many people's lives. And that's just not therapeutic. We have some very strict laws and there is some very heavy vilification of drinking and driving. It seems like the way that we deal with it is simply to crack down. What would be, in your mind, a better model? Well, the first thing to mention about drinking and driving is that it is very variable across different jurisdictions. That in itself is a big justice problem because it's just by chance whether you wind up in jurisdiction A or B can have enormous effects on your liberty and the way you're treated and the degree to which you get the opportunity for treatment rather than punishment, so forth and so on. But this, you know, I think that this is uh, in line with that broader theme of pendular shifts from different extremes. There was a time that drunk driving, drinking and driving was treated as not even a problem at all. And uh, there were effectively no laws enforced against it. And then that pendulum swung also, probably not by coincidence, in the 1980s at a time when there was a more general crackdown on drugs overall, the sort of ascendancy of Reagan and a real strong focus on individual responsibility and trying to police an individual's behavior. And in that context, we start to see the development of things like Mothers Against Drunk Driving 
You know, it's interesting you note this in light of what we were saying earlier about the American can company and approaches to littering or uh, alcohol industry and the way they individualize problems, because there's a similar thing that happened with MAD, with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. At the time, there were actually different policy organizations, and some were more focused on the sort of evils of the individual drinker. And some were more focused on the systemic and structural issues, like the fact that we don't tax alcohol nearly enough to make up for the harms that it causes. The alcohol industry at the time saw this, and they made a very strategic decision not to stay out of it, but to back the organizations like MAD that put more of an emphasis on the individual. I'm not saying this was the one single factor that led to that pendular shift, but it surely had an effect. It surely had an influence on the way that people understood drinking problems. What I hear you saying is a a sort of vilification of the individual. Uh, Yet another example of how it's hard to find a middle ground, because there are people who do need help, and there are people who are dangerous and do need to have some sort of intervention around dangerous driving. But right now it spawned a whole industry with interlock devices and other sorts of like little technological mechanisms that are are profit-making when people license them to courts. And I think we have to be conscious of that fact. It's not just um, in a vacuum that we come up with these types of policies about uh, drinking and driving or otherwise. I think it'll be interesting to see how the advance of the driverless car impacts this going forward. That is sort of an interesting environmental potential for curbing issues with drinking and driving. Oh, I can't wait either. I can't wait for a driverless car. Um, (laughs) As a New Yorker, I'm not a big fan of driving. If it were done safely, then it would be such a massive improvement in public health. I mean, just think about the magnitude of injuries and deaths that come as a result of driving, period. Forget about drinking and driving, just driving alone. It's very difficult to police notion of distracted driving. That has resonances with discussions around addiction too. Is it addiction if you seemingly can't stop yourself from texting or messing with your phone while you're driving and you cause an accident? Well, it sure is a major issue and it causes a lot of harm. And there are even folks nowadays who report a sort of compulsive loss of control around technology and all the rest. But it's not really best understood as an individual problem. The, the problem of distracted driving and cell phones is not that people are like well and truly addicted, you know, such that they like lose their jobs and their families and their livelihoods. It's a problem of a lot of people who have been subject to like a little bit of a nudge of the needle so that their driving is less safe, so that across the whole US population, there are a lot more accidents. Ever since Ralph Nader and you know, well before, there have been very, very powerful interests that have uh, tried to influence the narrative around safety and who's at fault and where to locate the harm and, and what we should do about it. One of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about was how people seem to intuitively have no problem with the concept of different physical abilities, such as people being literally born with different capacity. The idea that if I am less physically inclined as someone else, if I'm not as powerful or if I'm shorter, I still have access to all the same rights and responsibilities in society. And yet I am not as physically capable as some other people. And in some ways I'm more physically capable than some other people. 
And the environment plays a role in that, not just in the way that we were just talking about as far as a self-driving vehicle would equalize that pretty handily. But also if I lack access to resources such as nutritious food or enough food overall, or if I don't have clean drinking water, or if I don't get enough sleep, this can impact my physical capacity as well. If I just feel tired or if I get sick and everyone understands that there are all these factors that can affect physical performance. And yet when it comes to mental capacity, there is this weird expectation of homogeny, which basically says you should be able to do the things I do. If I can push away from the table after I've eaten one plate, you should be able to push away from the table after you've eaten one plate. If I can, you know, save up enough money in my 401k, then you should be able to have a 401k and you should be saving money in your 401k. There is this weird idea that we should all be planning and working in the same way as though everything is the same outside of physical capacity. I think it's a really interesting and provocative observation. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the idea of people simply not wanting to acknowledge that someone can be different as far as the way their brain works? So when it comes to Shikari Richardson, I had so many people on the threads who were saying, if it's a rule, it's a rule. And if they're not allowed to take drugs, they can't take drugs. Doesn't matter whether it's performance enhancing or not. It's just a rule and everybody needs to adhere to it. I had one person in particular say something like it doesn't target a particular group. And I thought, well, sure it does. It targets the group of people who have a more difficult time just simply being coerced out of doing drugs. As you point out, people have different capacities to resist temptation purely as an intrinsic factor. And also people, because of their upbringing and psychological factors impinging on them, might have different propensities toward substance use in general or harmful substance use. And I keep on making that distinction because I think it's important to say we often confuse drug policy with addiction policy. They're just not the same at all. We criminalize drug use that is not addictive. We treat addictive drug use as if it's a crime for some people, but then other people's addictive drug use gets treated as if it deserves care and support. So a lot of different threads get tangled up into one when we're talking about those different capacities and capabilities. What comes to mind when you talk about Shikari Richardson is this, this notion that people should be able to refrain from any temptation whatsoever. Like you say, assuming that it's a personal choice or a personal failing that deserves sanction it has wrapped up in it a bunch of assumptions about the way the mind works. I think if we took a pragmatic view of what drives people to use or what drives people even to extremes of addictive behavior, we could be a little more pragmatic in how we chose to intervene. Whether or not you think that somebody should or shouldn't be able to refrain from drug use, we know that punishment doesn't work. It's not really helpful. We do know that providing people with supports is helpful. One of the classic, classic studies in New York City was called Housing First, where you know after a bunch of different attempts at intervening in the problem of people with chronic street homelessness who are often severely mentally ill and very often had chronic problems with substance use, some investigators came up with the idea, radical at the time, just give people housing, just give them housing. And then 
we'll work out the rest. And then once somebody is stably housed, then we can send a team to go meet the person where they are and work with what their capacities are and work with what their interest is. You know, not only does it result in just a better life for the people who receive housing, but it also is much more effective at reducing harmful substance use. Some people call this the notion of recovery capital, which is, you know, obviously sort of a ca- capitalistic term for it. But it's the it's the notion that if somebody is trying to seek recovery from some sort of harmful or maladaptive substance use, they draw on resources, and we can think of those resources across different categories. There are social and interpersonal resources, like who's in your life. There are the more obvious financial resources that can you pay for treatment or can you pay for your basic needs? And then there are also the more environmental resources, like where do you happen to live? By what accident of birth did you wind up in city A versus city B? By what accident of birth did you wind up in family A versus family B? That recovery capital, just like other forms of capital, is really inequitably distributed. If we really think that people deserve access to recovery, and if we really want to be fair about the way we treat people's drug use, I think we have to take that kind of recovery capital into account. And one more thing, I want to just be very clear, because we were talking about Shikari Richardson, that, um, again, not all drug use is a drug problem. I think another thing you mentioned is that people jump to the conclusion that because she used marijuana, she must have a drug problem. That's not clear on the basis of it. She has a drug problem in the sense that she had a positive drug test and then suffered consequences from it. But did she have an ongoing problem with self-control or something approaching addiction or something that we would call a mental disorder? I mean, there's no way that we could jump to that conclusion just on the basis of one test. The moralizing that I heard went something like this. She is this athlete. She wants to compete. This is a rule. You cannot break the rule and still compete. She broke the rule. Therefore, she chose to not compete or she could not choose not to do the drug. So they are seeing it very much as like a moral failing as opposed to simply something that she did. I don't, I honestly don't know how to make heads or tails of the case because it, it it pulls together all of these different themes of like, you know, racial justice and fairness and sport, which is just such a big topic right now. She did agree to abstain from cannabis and then she tested positive for cannabis. So I'm not, personally, I'm not sure I would get behind the notion that like she should be excused necessarily or allowed to compete. I think the thing that's, I, I just don't know. I don't know one way or the other. I don't know how to, how to solve for that one because it doesn't seem like it's very satisfying on either side. The thing that I think really deserves a close look here is why the heck do we have a ban on cannabis anyway? Like, what does that have to do? It's not testosterone. It's not an anabolic steroid. It, you know, what is the supposed rationale for that? It has nothing to do whatsoever with performance as far as I'm concerned, except in maybe some marginal cases where you're trying to relax or, I don't know, trying to deal with maybe a chronic pain issue. But even then, the notion that it's going to, you know, shave, shave milliseconds off your time seems uh, a little, seems like a stretch to me. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to bring in that section on NPR with Dr. Joyner about how he was able to find any really satisfying research that said that it was even helpful in in even sports where relaxing is a benefit. Um, Certainly, he felt that there was nothing to show that it would help her in her particular arena. From what he could see, it just seemed to be some arcane rule about moralizing drug use. So that was sort of the debate that I was seeing ongoing online was people basically saying it's a ridiculous rule. It shouldn't even exist. It's a biased rule and it shouldn't exist. And other people who were saying rules are rules are rules are rules. 
And for me, when I think about the idea of different capacity physically and different capacity mentally or psychologically, it seems that this rule would impact some people more negatively than others. And if it's a frivolous rule, it does seem very unfair. Yeah, I think the notion of a frivolous rule is really where the money is in this example, because sports do have rules. You know, there are rules about the way you plant the pole in the pole vault. There are rules about the, you know, the way that you kind of move your body around the basketball court. And those rules have a purpose. They actually matter to the play. But I think you have to pause and your eyebrows go up a little bit if it's a totally frivolous rule. The reason the Shikari Richardson case got so much attention is because so many people have this collective eyebrow raising, like, what? You can't, what what does that have to do with anything? What I hear you saying is that people have different capacities for however you might term it, stress reduction or coping or, or whatever else. And that's not, it's not directly part of the sport or competition. And so we shouldn't penalize people for like relaxing this way versus that way. I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to that argument. I mean, I, I don't think it, it should be up to like the Olympic committee to, to regulate the way people relax. Like you can have a bubble bath, but it can't be too warm. I, I don't see the sort of fairness in that, but we have trouble looking at drugs that way. We, we act as if cannabis is inherently evil. If it weren't inherently evil, then there wouldn't be a problem with it on these drug tests. If it doesn't have anything to do with performance, then it must signify something else. And it's that, is that something else that I think is the, is the thing that the whole episode shines a light on? Like, why do we have this crazy outlier rule? It's just like the legalization debate. Like why, why is cannabis illegal still in a lot of jurisdictions, but much more harmful substances and activities are not? I heard a lot of folks that were expressing something akin to, I wouldn't do it. And if it really mattered to her to compete, she wouldn't do it. And she can just say no. I just don't see everything working that way. There are times when I get, for example, a food craving, and I'm not going to just say no. There are other times when I might want something and I just say no. I'll say, I don't have time for this right now, whatever. But I have had different types of impulses that have been much stronger than other impulses. And what really drives me or motivates me or whatever I feel impulses to do may not motivate or drive someone else, especially when it's not something that's going to impact the result. It does seem to me that we're targeting certain groups who may have less impulse control in certain areas. Tracy, I think you're hitting upon a really important and fascinating philosophical puzzle that at least is part of the discussion. People say, I wouldn't have done that. And so she shouldn't have, or it must have been her choice or them's the breaks. Getting back to willpower, there's long been this debate about compulsion versus choice. It's one of those other binaries that we have trouble finding the complicated gray area. It, and it actually goes back to sin. You know, before we had modern psychology, and before we even had what we would call philosophy today, we had theology. Theology was really interested in human behavior. The first use of willpower was in the 19th century, but the first ideas about will date back to St. Augustine and even earlier. Those were thinkers who were really interested in this notion of what does sin come from? What is sinning? And like sinning to them wasn't just a thing that is bad. Sinning for them was the philosophical problem of why does someone choose to do the, the harmful thing, even though they supposedly know that it is harmful? 
there are all sorts of difficult attempts to map out that sort of gray area to what extent somebody is powerless to what extent they're not. And I sure as heck don't have any clear answers here when it comes to the notion of free will versus powerlessness. But what I do observe is that those are the same kinds of debates that map onto these contemporary debates. And so we can't escape from the sin. We, we kind of act as if it's some like coldly rational calculus about like what kind of behavior somebody does. Do they smoke cannabis or not? But it really, it goes back to this age old problem that cannot escape the associations with sinfulness and sinful behavior. But I have heard a lot about the effect on impulse control and lack of sleep, for example, that not sleeping enough can start to impact your ability to respond to things and to mediate those responses. And I know that I have times when I might be sitting at my desk and I look like I'm sitting at my desk like any other day. And yet that day, everything is hitting the fan. So stuff is coming in on my email and I've got this problem with a coworker that's pinging me on Teams and I've got this other situation that's going on with something personal that I have to make some calls today and try to get that sorted out. And I'm trying to get this other thing going on and I got to get my cat to the vet. And on this particular day, me just sitting at my desk like any other day, someone comes in and starts to do the one more thing, that straw that breaks the back. And I turn around and I snap at that person in a way that shocks them because they weren't expecting it because I'm just sitting at my desk like any other day. They've come in, they've talked to me before. I've never had that reaction, but today I have that reaction because today I am on my last nerve. Even a person who generally might have control of particular impulses or be able to mitigate those responses and those impulses in a certain situation, even that can fail. Yeah, definitely. And my mind goes to the question of responsibility. As we learn more about neuroscience and the way that human psychology operates, there's a massive new frontier opening up in the law. And it's hard to make sense of some of our notions about individual responsibility in light of how we think about human psychology today. You know, law operates on all of these old ideas about will and about someone's capacity to choose. More and more, this sort of, you know, Western idea of the individual actor operating with free will seems to be undercut by modern science. And so there's any number of ways that people in neuroscience are trying to figure this out now. You know, some people say that, you know, whether or not people can act freely is totally irrelevant to the law. The, the law never really cared if people had free will in the first place. We just have to have an even playing field and act as if, even if we know it's not true. And then other people are trying to craft like a more integrative account that kind of refashions our expectations around people's ability to control their behavior in a different way. But it gets very, very complicated because so many of these faculties are subjective. Just like you're saying, Tracy, your ability to just like refrain from unkind speech or snapping, that's a subjective and personal and dynamic function that is subject to so many different inputs that how could we possibly like go back and kind of legislate or adjudicate like all of the different forces and the causes and conditions that are like coming down on one person? You know, say, for example, you didn't snap. Say, for example, you like you threw a coffee mug and you accidentally cut somebody's finger off, not to be clear about that, but then you go to court. How could how could we possibly like assign a value to uh, your sleep deprivation versus not? Didn't you voluntarily choose to deprive yourself of sleep? Well, actually, no, I 
you know, I saw some nasty thing on the street going home. Well, okay, it wasn't really your fault. I mean, the notions of like fault and blame and shame are so deeply wrapped up in our ideas of responsibility. To me, it seems really tangled sometimes. I certainly don't have a solution in terms of how we think about these individual cases. I just know that I, I sure don't want to be the guideline writer or the law writer. opinion article in the New York Times by Michael Pullen called How Should We Do Drugs Now? According to this article, addiction may be less a disease than a symptom of trauma, social disconnection, depression, or economic distress. As the geography of the opioid and meth crises suggests, one's environment and economic prospects play a large role in the likelihood of becoming addicted. Just look at where these deaths of despair tend to cluster or the places where addiction to crack cocaine proliferated. I really like the notion that we have to look closer at what is underlying addiction, what addiction is trying to tell us, what it's trying to tell us about the individual and their own suffering and what it's trying to tell us about society and society suffering. A phrase that Michael Pollan uses here is deaths of despair. That actually comes from the work of Case and Deaton, two distinguished Princeton economists who were among the first to notice that a lot of these deaths uh, attributable to the opioid epidemic were occurring among white middle-class Americans. And it was a shocking result because it was essentially the first time in decades that the life expectancy of that group actually decreased. And deaths of despair refer to the fact that this is a group that in more recent years under the weight of globalization and offshoring and other changes, also changes in the healthcare system where people's healthcare coverage gets much more tenuous and there's a much higher risk of bankruptcy from unanticipated healthcare costs. All of these stressors combine to make people much more likely to suffer from addiction or other opioid problems. It's sort of a hot topic right now in addiction science, but I don't, I don't think that that notion has like really gotten out there enough for people to truly understand the necessity, the absolute necessity to look at the underlying causes of these things that we call opioid epidemics. If you say opioid epidemic, it just sounds like bad companies flooded the market with opioids. And that is true. And it's more than that. It is true that certain pharmaceutical companies did awful misleading things to push dangerous medications and obscure their risks. And it's not just the medication. It's not just the substance alone. Oftentimes there's some other sort of suffering or difficulty or just outright oppression lurking underneath the surface. Because in the case of deaths of despair, it, a lot of times it's, it's talked about as a white problem because that's what the initial cohort was. It was looking at white deaths around the initial opioid epidemic. But Case and Deaton themselves are very clear that it's not just a white problem. And actually we see the exact same processes playing out in the 1970s and 1980s among urban Black Americans who were more likely to have industry jobs. That was a contributor to the crack epidemic. If we looked at those causes and conditions and we were more compassionate about you know, all of the underlying factors that were feeding into that epidemic, we might have anticipated the opioid epidemic a little better. But instead, crack was treated as if it was a problem of individual responsibility and treated with police crackdowns rather than any attention to what we call in the medical field, the social determinants of health, all of the different social factors that impact people's health. So I, I think it's a really important quote and a really important sentiment. 
Another quote that caught my attention says, we drink only in the company of others. We eat food with alcohol. After drinking, we don't drive, a practice codified by law. The people who follow these rules and rituals are by and large, not the people who get into trouble with alcohol. Yeah, I think it's an interesting list because of the judgment factor. And the thing that jumped out to me was that some of those things listed off actually do have harms. Some of them don't have harms. Part of that section that you didn't highlight actually is most of us don't drink before a certain hour in the day. That doesn't really matter. There are cultures, say, for example, in Southern Europe, where it's totally normal to drink at lunchtime. I'm not talking about like the Don Draper two martini lunch, but having a glass of wine with lunch, who cares? But there are other things in that list, like after drinking, not driving. Well, yeah, it, it, it is harmful to drink to the point of intoxication or incapacity and then drive. The, you know, the, the pragmatic gets mixed up with the moralized the effect of all the moralizing and all of like the culturally bound and not actually consequential rules is to just muddy up the whole situation. It makes it harder to be clear-eyed about what actually matters in terms of our policies. There's actually a thing that happens on social media where people will say, name something that is vilified if you're poor, but fine or praised if you're wealthy. It's not just with regard to the drugs that we have these things that are okay sometimes, but not okay other times. So for example, we also moralize the idea of how people spend their money as long as they're poor. You will be policed in how you spend money if you don't have a lot of money. So if you if it turns out your car breaks down and you don't have money and people ask, well, what did you spend it on? Like, did you really need to buy a cell phone that's that expensive? Did you really have to buy cigarettes? Did you really need... And, you know, list whatever it is you want to list that the other person considers frivolous. Whereas if you had money, nobody would even question it. But because you don't, it gets vilified and you get judged for it. And it's similar also to, we talked earlier about, you know, sexuality. So there are these forms of sexuality that as long as you can package it in the way that we accept it and think that that's okay, then that's okay. But when you start to come out of that box and do something different, then you're going to be judged. Even, what, even if it's not harmful, even if it's like you say, there's the pragmatic concerns and then there's just these moralistic concerns. But we tend to judge a lot of things weirdly moralistically, even though they don't really cause social harm. Yeah, there's such a long history of, for example, the worthy and unworthy poor. That's the name that they were given roughly 100 years ago. The idea around that time was that some people were worthy poor in the sense that they were doing what they could to get ahead and they were poor by no fault of their own. But then there were also the unworthy poor who were vicious, vicious in the sense of like actively committing a vice. So therefore they didn't receive public assistance. At the time, that sounded like a really pragmatic calculus. That sounded as if it was like an enlightened social policy. It was supposed to be better than the previous generation's approach to the social problem of poverty. The problem is these like supposedly scientific, pragmatic approaches are really easily infected with our, our biases and our morals. And it can be very hard to sort out in the moment. It's usually the case of the tail wagging the dog, that there's some sort of social judgment, moral judgment, and then we kind of like retrofit a supposedly rational or scientific explanation onto it. And you know what that tells me is that we have to be really, really humble about these sorts of like paternalistic methods of controlling people and of trying to influence their behavior. 
there are places for behavioral nudges and public health work. And, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to influence people's behavior, but I think we also have to hold at the same time, this paradox that we, we don't always know what's right for people. And we don't know that we're thinking clearly in terms of what is actually helpful versus what is just operating as a sort of stealth missionary for our own beliefs. Well, it's like when you brought up housing first, I did an episode with a homeless advocate. And when I was planning for that, I have another friend who is also an advocate for the homeless who herself struggles with homelessness. And on a thread that she started, they were talking about a community type. But one of the things that they complained about was that there are housing initiatives where if you do drugs when you're being enrolled into this housing or after you've received this housing, you can be removed from the housing. So you're not allowed to do drugs while you're in the housing. I remember thinking as soon as I read that, how counterintuitive it sounds intuitive. Like you said, it seems like you say to yourself, well, yes, you know, you don't want to bring this into the community. But when you really think about it, people that are homeless are struggling often with drugs. And one of the things that I talked about in the prior episode was how a person may actually not have a drug problem, hit the streets. And then after a while, they just get so stressed that they start using just to alleviate some of that stress and deal with life on the streets to hear you can have housing and we can help you unless you have this additional problem of drug use, which makes your situation all the worse and makes things harder for you now to get a job, to get you know help, then you can't have our help. So it's almost like pulling help away from people who need it even more. It's a big problem. It's a problem that's mirrored even in our substance use disorder treatment facilities. We still have a huge, huge problem with treatment facilities that will discharge people for use inpatient treatment centers or outpatient treatment centers. If somebody has a positive result on a urine test, they say you can't get treatment here anymore. Well, if they're seeking treatment for their drug problem and you kick them out for because they're using drugs, that, that's a little backward, isn't it? Uh, it's really more about a tool of enforced compliance than anything else. You know, at the same time, people do respond to incentives. So I'm not speaking in defense of any of these policies, because I think that's a far extreme that's like, just like clearly and manifestly not helpful. But there, there are other examples like contingency management programs, where if people get contingencies, meaning these positive opportunities for intermittent rewards for having a negative urine, that's a huge advantage. It actually has a big therapeutic effect. And there are a lot of complications with this. There's like rhetorical complications because people don't like the idea of giving something of monetary value for someone for not using drugs. There are regulatory problems because if someone's in a treatment program and you're giving them money or if you're giving them like a voucher to go see a movie for coming in to get treatment, that's almost like a kickback technically under the law. So they, you know, it's a very, very complicated type of system, but at least within a very basic clinical assessment, if you give people this contingency management voucher stuff, then the results go through the roof. It's a really effective way of helping people with their drug problems. I think the key, again, is to support someone's own self-advocacy, meet them where they are, try to support them in their own goals, to you know, watch out for putting on some sort of like tool of control under the guise of medicine. We can use incentives. We can even use sometimes natural consequences if we're careful about it and not using it in a, a punishing way. You know, I'm a doctor, so I'm biased, but like the point should always be the person's health. The point should be what is the actual effect on their life and not do they conform to some expectation that I have. And the one final quote that I wanted to hit says, 
While it is surely the case that the burden of drug abuse, including that of alcohol and tobacco, will fall most heavily on the poor, that argues not for a war on the drugs so much as a war on poverty, on the conditions of life that make using drugs seem like a reasonable solution or means of self-medication. I don't know if Michael Pollan was aware of this, but there's a really great book that made a splash in academic circles called From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. It's a beautiful explanation of how these very optimistic and these very progressive measures in the 1960s, under the banner of what what was called the War on Poverty, primarily by LBJ, were ultimately co-opted and turned into sort of like the foundation for a war on crime. This is a controversial book, and I'm probably not doing it justice in this like very brief description. But the point I want to make is that I don't like this warlike language, frankly. I just I think that when we start to envision these these sorts of efforts as a battle or like a war against some sort of like imagined opponent, that can be so easily twisted and co-opted into some other end. It can easily just sort of like conform to like the reigning judgments and aggressions of the time. I don't know. I'm just cautious about wars on anything. Uh, I don't want to be too picky about it. The overall sentiment is that we have to acknowledge that the harms of, of drugs and drug use are inequitably distributed. And if we really care about people and we really care about the effect on people's lives, then the point is not going after the drugs. The point is looking at what the drugs are pointing toward. What are the drugs a symptom of? What is going to make people's lives better? What is going to make people's communities better? As opposed to this like very flimsy proxy of just whether or not somebody is using a drug or not. And you will keep continuing to try and make people's lives better with your practice. Why don't you tell folks where they can find you? The best place to find me is my website, carlericfisher.com. Unfortunately, there are a few different ways to spell each of those three names. But <laughs> it'll, be in the, it'll be in the description. So you, <laughs> okay, can, you can give good. it to me and we'll, we'll make sure to put it in the description for folks. Okay, that's great. Yeah, so carlericfisher.com is the best way to find me. There, there's links to some of my writings, but the thing I'm really excited about now is I'm starting my own podcast. It's called Flourishing After Addiction. The notion is to look at ideas about addiction from a broad range of different perspectives, not just medicine and neuroscience, but also policy, law, politics, issues of social and economic justice, which I think are totally inextricable from how we think about addiction. So if you're listening to this and you you find these topics interesting, then pop on over and you can subscribe to my email list. And that's the best way to to get updates about new episodes coming out with everything from experts to people with lived experience. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. And also good luck with your new podcast. Thank you so much, Tracy. It was such an interesting and stimulating and wide-ranging discussion. I really appreciate you having me on to chat with you. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.